0: This is Issues and Interviews. And now, here's Kieran Michael Lawler on the Red Apple Podcast Network.
1: Welcome back to Issues and Interviews with Kieran Michael Lawler on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Great to be back with you today. Hey, before we start, do me a quick favor. It'll take one second, it's free. Download, subscribe, and share this podcast so we can spread it far and wide. And we have a blockbuster show. We're loaded for bear on this show. We have a great guest, former U.S. Congressman Lee Zeldin, our candidate for governor here in New York State as Republicans in the last election. And he's up to something very interesting. He started a new political action committee, Leadership Americans Need Pack, The Leadership America Needs Pack, started by Lee Zeldin. We're gonna talk to him all about it. And stay through the end of the show because I'm gonna do something I don't like doing. But it has to be done. I'm going to agree wholeheartedly, or at least partially, with liberal darling Alexandria Ocasio Cortez. I'm going to agree with AOC on a big issue that's in the news right now. So stick around for that. I'm not proud of it, but on this one, probably for different reasons than me, she's right. And I agree with her. So stick around for that. And do you remember last week we talked about the COVID reckoning that's going on, how the elites got everything wrong? on COVID, from vaccines to masks to lockdowns to the origins of COVID. It's pretty much agreed now that they got all that stuff wrong. And you would think that the people on the left who were wrong would either admit they were wrong or keep their mouth shut and just not mention it and move on to the next thing. Move on to being wrong on the next thing. But no, right after I got off of this show the other day and we talked about this, I saw an article in the LA Times, someone named Robin... Abcarian, Robin Abcarian. I think it's a, I think it's a female, but I don't know. And the title of the article says it all: mask mandates? Question mark. COVID origins? Question mark. Why are we still having these debates? She asked those three questions in the title of the article. Well, well, here's an answer. How about because those things destroyed and continue to destroy the quality of life of millions of people in the United States and elsewhere, from kids to adults, people in the medical field who lost their jobs, people in different professions who lost their job because of these mandates. So that's why, that's why we're still talking about it. I understand it, that your ideology was wrong on this and you don't wanna talk about it, but you're defending the indef- indefensible. She's defending the indefensible. And what she does in the article, she muddies the water. She says, well, it's not really clear that the masks don't work. It's not really clear. Every person in the whole world doesn't agree that the COVID pandemic originated in a lab in Wuhan, China. So. Since there's not unanimity, unanimity. That's a hard one to say. That's a hard one to say. Therefore, it's muddied waters and we're not really sure. So let's just start talking about it. And then after she muddies the waters. She does what liberals love to do. She pivoted right to the favorite talking point of everybody on the left, regardless of topic. She blamed Trump. She blamed Trump. Her big blaming of Trump was he demonized Fauci. He didn't listen to Fauci enough. Well, I don't know if the author of this article in the LA Times has you know, read it, any news from the last two and a half years. Fauci was wrong, Fauci is the villain in all this. And she gets right to making our point for us from last week and says, these people who are complaining about masks and vaccine mandates and the COVID origin, they're not scientists, they're not experts, they don't know, their opinion doesn't count. Well, guess what, Robin, guess what? The science was wrong. And average Joe's like me and you were right. All the science in the world got us was lockdowns that destroyed economies, exacerbated existing problems like addiction and loneliness and mental health issues, destroyed businesses that were built over years and decades and even generations and took away people's livelihoods. Nurses were the heroes in the pandemic. And then a nurse said, you know, I'm not sure I want to stick that stuff in my body that has that hasn't been studied over the long term. You're fired. You're fired. That's what these people did during the pandemic. So, you always have to be vigilant against the left. They're never going to admit defeat. They're always going to pivot. They're always going to keep pushing bad ideas. And we have to be hyper vigilant about that. That's liberalism in a nutshell. Oh, and speaking of liberalism, how it sounds good in theory and isn't necessarily good in practice, here in New York, we have a bill, and the bill sounds so unassailable. How could you oppose this? Healthy school meals for all New York kids. Now let me give you a little background. Right now, through the federal school lunch program, about half the kids in America get a school lunch. Okay, during the pandemic, pretty much every kid in America got a school lunch. And now the pandemic's over and that 100% universal federal school lunch is over. So states are trying to step in. And let's face it, the state's running a program like that is better than the federal government running it. Ideally it'd be run at the school district level, but Here's what they want to do. Here's what they mean by universal. If you're wealthy, if your parents are wealthy and you live in a, in a mansion or you're working middle class and you're you know your parents are comfortable, you're comfortable, you're gonna get a free lunch. You're gonna get your lunch subsidized the same way a poor kid is. And you know there's Republicans jumping on board of this bill because nobody wants to be the bad guy and say universal school lunches are a bad idea. Well, I'll be the bad guy, okay? Because as my mother would say, The road to hell is paved with good intentions, okay? That's basically what liberalism boils down to, isn't it? It's the thought that counts. You know, you get a present that you don't really like, ah, it's the thought that counts. Even if liberals mess everything up like they did in the pandemic, like they've done in countless other spheres of our lives, well, their hearts were in the right place. Well, maybe their hearts are in the right place here, maybe they're not, but it's bad policy. I'm gonna tell you why. First of all, teachers unions for it. That gives me pause. Are the teachers unions, are they experts in the impacts of universal lunch programs? No, they're leftists. They want government to control everything. If every kid in America or every kid in New York state gets a government paid lunch, that's more government in the lives of people. That's a win for the teachers union. And and let's face it, they were the ones that wanted to keep schools closed. They didn't care about your kid being locked out of school during the pandemic. They would still have the schools closed and your kid learning on Zoom or pretending to learn on Zoom if they had their way in many cases. That's just the position of the teachers union in New York state and elsewhere. And New York farm bureau is for it. And that's probably why you see some Republicans coming out for it. Okay. I could see why the New York farm bureau is for it. They want to sell more, more food to the schools, good for their business, sell more crops. And you know, Republicans have a strong constituency and strong support for the farm bureau, but it doesn't make this good policy. And the big reason they say that you can't just have half the kids getting school lunch paid for by the government. Why it can't be means-tested as it is now? Okay, if you're below a certain income level, then you, you know, you get free or reduced lunch. The reason it has to be universal. They say is lunch shaming. They don't want a kid to feel bad that he or she is getting the lunch for free, and other kids are have their mom making them a sandwich or have two bucks in their pocket to buy the school lunch. That's the big reason. They would they want to tax me and you to pay for a rich kid's lunch and a middle-class kid's lunch, so that the poor kid who's already getting the free lunch doesn't feel bad about it. I don't know that that stops any bullying in school. I mean, the bullies are going to bully, right? So if there's lunch shaming going on by bullies, they're just going to adjust and pick on a kid for something else, which, you know, definitely the administration should step in there. But I don't think that's a reason to have the government now interjected in one third of the meals of every child in the state of New York. Because it leads to and has the potential to lead to dependency on government. And that's what the left ones, they love when people are dependent on government because that empowers them. That keeps them in power. And this is one step in that direction. I'm not saying every kid who's middle class or wealthy who gets a school lunch is going to become dependent on government. But some kids are. So it is going to change the thinking of some people. Hey, government dependency is not so bad. But we know 80 or 90 years since the New Deal, 50 years since the Great Society, government dependency leads to a life of misery. It often leads to a life and a community of crime, of addiction of broken homes it does and now yeah this is a slippery slope argument because slippery slopes occur and you get a free school lunch and the government grows a little bit and the government's a little bit more involved in your business now when they threaten to take away the school lunch ooh, then we have to go to our democrat representatives our liberal representatives and they're gonna they're gonna fight to keep the keep the school lunch program going and you know going from rags to riches is great For society. It's the American dream. We're proud of our parents or grandparents who came here with nothing and made a life. And then our families built upon that life. One story I love to tell that I'm the most proud of when my wife and I were had a very young family and we're just starting out. We had three kids born pretty much the first three years after we got married. And you know, it was a struggle. It was expensive. And it was Father's Day one year, and we really didn't have any money to do anything. But we had a coin jar of our nickels and quarters and dimes and pennies. And we poured that coin jar into one of those machines and we got like 55 bucks out and uh, Father's Day is in June and we went to a Hudson Valley Renegades minor league baseball game in in Fishkill, near where we live. And I love to tell that story because things are better now. My wife and I are more established financially and and in every other way. But I'm very proud of coming through the tough times. And I love that story because it kind of sums up how tough the times were. I mean, we weren't going to be on the street or starving, but. We really didn't have 50 bucks to do something fun with the kids on Father's Day, but we had this coin jar we cashed it in and we had a great day. And now we look back on that and and we're proud of it. And our kids will be proud of it one day. So don't lead kids down the road to dependency. Self-sufficiency is what should be taught in schools, in society and elsewhere. And you know what? We don't have the money, okay? We don't have the money to give middle-class kids who can afford their own lunch or rich kids who can afford their own lunch a free lunch. Totally unnecessary. I know, not a popular opinion. It's very easy to say, oh, I'm for free lunch, I'm for free lunch. And that's how bad policy happens. Like I said, quoting my mother, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We are joined on the Issues and Interviews Hotline by Lee Zeldin, former congressman, our outstanding gubernatorial candidate back in November 2022, and recently the founder of Leadership America Needs PAC, Lee Zeldin. How are you?
0: I'm doing great. It's good to be with you.
1: Why did you start this pack, Lee? What's it all about?
0: Well, I think it's really important for the Republican Party to expand and grow, to evolve tactics that... It's not working. And the fact that in 2022, with Joe Biden in the White House, one-party Democratic rule in Washington, D.C., so much heading in the wrong direction in our country that there isn't a national red wave that would play out last year, it's pretty crazy now. It's important to understand why that is. If I had to just identify one reason, I would say that a red wave is created not by articulating what you're against, but articulating what you stand for. I mean, we could say till we're blue in the face that Joe Biden's bad, that the Democratic Party is bad. And, and that might work to a certain extent, but what actually creates that next level of enthusiasm, energy, momentum, a movement, a national red wave is articulating what we stand for. We also have to do a better job getting inside of the cities and the suburbs. We need to be driving the message, showing up inside of these cities. It doesn't just impact the vote inside of the city, but also the media market. I mean, you know this, the New York City media market isn't just five boroughs. It covers geographically two-thirds of the state. It goes into Connecticut, it goes into New Jersey. So when I, for example, running for governor, am showing up inside of New York City generating press on the need to, for example, make our streets safer, well, that is what people in the suburbs are waking up to in their morning when they turn on the news or before they go to sleep in the evening when they're turning on the news to get caught up on the day. And I would just say that we need to be speaking more to Democrat groups. We need to be going to Democratic communities, and we need to be doing it not by acting like Democrats, but by articulating why we are proud, principled conservatives. And I think that a lot of candidates and campaigns on the GOP side might be pleasantly surprised to realize that Democrats, in many respects, are waiting with open arms. They resonate with our message. Our problem is we just haven't been showing up.
1: Yeah, great points. Lee Zeldin, founder of Leadership America Needs PAC. And so this is not a New York State thing. This is a national red wave you're trying to create. PACs, political action committees are kind of force multipliers. They raise money and then they, are you going to support candidates or you're going to put money into infrastructure to improve the tactics? What's the plan there? So
0: both. First off, we are focused on keeping the House Republican majority, and that battleground, in many respects, is right here inside of New York. We need to do a lot to be able to grow the Republican Party here in New York. There's a lot of work to be doing here in the state, and there's a lot of work to be doing, quite frankly, across the entire country. We will be raising money to be able to donate directly to candidates, And on top of that, we are formed as what's called a carry committee. It allows us to be able to also do work as independent expenditures to be able to support the message, the effort, candidates, and this cause going into the elections in front of us. Operating independently. There are other political action committees out there that are formed similarly as far as being a what's called a carry committee where you could donate directly but also do these independent expenditures. But we are operating in a very unique space here within the Republican Party because, quite frankly, We're not doing a lot of what you and I are talking about right here. And on top of that, we're also going to be targeting Gen Z and millennial voters with projects as well. It's a growing block. It's the Democratic Party's largest block. And we just are doing a really crappy job messaging to them as Republicans.
1: What's the message, Lee Zeldin, for Gen Z and millennials? What would appeal to them that also is a good Republican principle?
0: So what's interesting is the methods of communicating is where we're actually coming up the most short. They care about issues. They want safe streets like like we do. They are prioritizing opportunity as far as jobs, and they have dreams. They care about having a higher quality education inside of our school. They value freedom. So on the substance, A lot of what Republicans stand for, a lot of what Republicans have been messaging is in line with a lot of these younger voters. The problem is that we aren't reaching them. The methods need to be evolved. Campaigning 30 years ago is extremely different than campaigning now. The way that Gen Z and millennial voters are getting their news over their phones and social media on apps it's a very unique way of campaigning i would also say that the style of how we campaign the way that we talk to gen z millennial voters is different than the way you might be communicating to a senior right and i just feel like the republican party needs to do a better job communicating what is a consistent policy position but just doing it in a different way so that you're actually resonating with that 25-year-old instead of trying to resonate with that younger voter as if they're senior citizen.
1: Yeah, good point. Well, you're making me feel old, though, Lee. You know, uh, it wasn't that long ago you and I were young 30-year-old guys in politics, and now we're, you know, mid-40s or so, and we're, we're trying to get the word out to these young whippersnappers.
0: Well, you know, it's amazing how much things have changed. If you're campaigning 30 years back, you don't have teletown halls. You don't have podcasts. You don't have the ability to do a, a video or audio interview, take the clip, and then promote it around via email and social media. There's just so much that has evolved in so many respects. And I, I think that one of, one of the many things that Barack Obama's campaign was credited for in the 2008 presidential campaign and then his reelection in 2012 was the data and field work. And it was just very much uh, next level. And the Republicans were way behind and there was a lot lost. And now the Republicans really have been playing catch up this entire time. And we can't afford to just, you know, in perpetuity be playing catch up here. We also need to be registering more voters. It's something that for too many, it seems to be the The second highest priority that people just can't ever get to, they just don't have the bandwidth. The Republican Party here in the state of New York is going to have to lean into voter registration. Scott Pressler is somebody who travels the country and he does a great job registering voters. But there's only one Scott Pressler who's out there registering voters like that. And it shouldn't be, you know, just on on individuals like this. It needs to become part of the party infrastructure. So while you know, you and I can talk about new school tactics of how to message and get our uh, and, and get our points across to be able to earn support. At the same time, we can't lose focus on the old school methods that you know, tried and true methods of being able to make direct contact, knocking on doors, making phone calls, showing up at Parades and fairs and just the the one-on-one direct contact can never be phased out. It's never going to be a way that is going to be replaced by you know some data or some high-paid political consultant. We just need to keep pressing the flesh and, and recruit candidates who are going to work hard and have good campaign managers who are going to run a good campaign and start early, work hard. And hopefully we can break that supermajority in the New York State legislature and, and elsewhere because there are local races that will be coming up in 23 and again up in 24 while everyone's focused on our presidential.
1: Yeah, good points. You know, you talk about new tactics and you talked about breaking the supermajority in the state Senate, and we, we didn't really make any steps despite your success at the top of the ticket. We're still in a super minority status in the New York State Senate. Early voting is something I don't think we as Republicans in New York State have a adopted or adapted to. We send out mail, you know, a week before the actual election day, but we haven't really reconfigured our campaigns to deal with the fact that there's a couple weeks of early voting. What can we do there to maximize that time period and ultimately create more votes in our vote tally at the end of election day?
0: I think that the Republican voters are starting to become a little bit more familiar with and comfortable with early voting the point is for someone who's out there who hasn't done it before and they, they just, you know, they don't get it. They uh, don't trust it. The fact is the early in-person voting is showing up and voting on the same machines that you'll vote on for election day. And it helps the can the candidacies, the campaigns who you su- uh where you're supporting, because now that you have voted, they can focus their attention elsewhere. If, enough of a candidate's vote is already in. When it gets to the election day turnout operations, there's less people who you're trying to turn out who are already on your side. And you could focus that extra attention towards other voters to maybe swing them your way and to, to to get out others who maybe you otherwise wouldn't have had the bandwidth to target. So there's something to be said for the ability to bank as many of your republican votes before the election to make your get out the vote effort more effective when you get closer to election day so i would encourage it i would also add by the way that i mean the lessons learned of not leaning into these laws have resulted in a pretty heavy price to be paid you saw it in nevada Uh, This past November's election where uh, they lost statewide races, there was a big snowstorm uh, that took place in in the northern part of the state leading into Election Day, and it impacted turnout, and they barely lost. And in that state, they don't lean into what is a ballot harvesting law that's on the book. They have early voting that's on the book, and they just kind of, the Republican Party essentially boycotted these methods, and they ended up up losing a Senate seat because of it. My message is, if you have Democrats proposing election law changes that you strongly disagree with, do everything in your power to advocate for those laws to never actually become uh, enacted. Keep them as uh, you know, just bills where you win the debate, but they never actually get passed. But once that idea becomes law, when it's enacted, if some state like you know, California enacts ballot harvesting, it was 2018 where they ended up getting smoked and the congressional delegation of Republicans in, New York went, uh, in California went from 14 to 7. And they said, you know what? Well, let's try something different. Let's try to beat them at their own game. And in 2020, they ended up winning a bunch of seats back because they essentially were doing ballot harvesting better than the Democrats were. So these laws that are out there, listen, when they're first getting proposed, if you're able to stop them, advocate strongly on the merits, do your best to mobilize to prevent it from ever getting passed. But once they're on the books, my thought is do it better than the Democrats to make them regret even passing it.
1: Interesting points there. Hey, one last question as we wrap up. You know, historically, people from New York and the Northeast moved south to North Carolina and Georgia, and they made those red states a little purpler, possibly blue in some cases. But somehow in Florida, New Yorkers and Northeasterners are flocking to Florida. That state's getting more red. Their voter registration for Republicans is through the roof. They have a real popular governor. What are they doing down there that we could replicate here in New York?
0: People want freedom, prosperity, and safety. And we can't even overthink it. It's very basic to understand why New Yorkers are hitting their breaking point and leaving. The governor here in New York, Kathy Hochul, she just doesn't get it as to why New Yorkers are leaving the state. Why does New York lead the entire nation in out-migration? And the answer is that they look to states, New Yorkers are looking at places like Florida and Texas and the Carolinas and Tennessee, and they believe that if they move down there that their money will go further, they'll feel safer, they'll live life freer. That is summing up so much of what is going on with the mindset of so many people who are on their way out. There have been times in the past where New Yorkers have been tested. We were tested right after 9-11. We were tested in the late 80s and early 90s, especially in that New York City area. But New Yorkers, with the spirit of New York, stayed and fought for their city, for their family, for their future. But what has happened now is that these people who are leaving the state, and it's not just inside of some of the Democratic run cities. It's now parts of the suburbs and even rural parts of the state. New Yorkers have had enough with one party democratic rule and they're deciding to go. They're not putting the state into timeout for a few weeks or a few months. (laughs) They're gone permanently. And it happens every single day. So for those who are in charge right now in the state, They really need to better understand economics. They need to understand the value of freedom. They need to better understand why so many New Yorkers are deciding to flee, because until they confront that head-on, it's only going to continue to get worse. The state's heading in the wrong direction, and I, and I know you do as well, we have to do our part to turn things around. It's certainly not easy. It's not uphill, and some days it kind of feels like it's even more of a challenge than it was the day before. But I'm still here. You're still here. We're still fighting for our state. But unfortunately, people in our own family, friends, they're gone. They're not coming back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm still an optimist like you, Lee Zeldin. Leadership America needs. Lee Zeldin is the leadership America needs. Might be the leadership New York State needs in the United States Senate, taking out Gillibrand in 2024. We'll leave that for another time. Lee Zeldin, thanks so much for joining us.
0: You got it. Great to be with you. Take care.
1: All right, from a great Republican, a great conservative, Lee Zeldin, to me agreeing with the leading leftists in the world a o c we don't agree on much, although we're from the same part of the world. She pretends to be from the Bronx, she's really from Yorktown, which is about twenty minutes south of here. We go down there and play them in youth football and youth baseball, beautiful facilities, beautiful suburban town. They have a nice little theater in the middle of the town there, great town. She pretends like she's from you know the the tough streets of the Bronx she's from one of the most beautiful prosperous towns in New York State, not too far from my town, a little bit south of here, if you take the Taconic Parkway. So other than geography, we don't agree on much, but you know what we agreed on four years ago and we agree on today? Amazon. Amazon was gonna come to New York and we were gonna give them billions of dollars of tax dollars. I was against it. I remember going on Tucker Carlson, Republicans were all fawning over it. And me and AOC, we were fighting shoulder to shoulder. And some of the points we made at the time were, one, corporate welfare, is wrong especially with regard to amazon because you're talking about the richest man in the world one of the biggest companies in the world everybody in new york state is crying out for tax relief and make the cost of doing business to reduce the cost of doing business and one hand-picked huge corporation is going to get that relief and the burden that they would have endured in terms of taxes at amazon is going to be shifted onto everybody else that is bad bad policy it's unfair It's unjust. So I opposed it. Also, it's interesting when people say, Oh, we gotta we gotta give them tax subsidies so that they'll come here. And especially when Democrats say that. And Andrew Cuomo was all for this and the mainline Democrats were all for this. But they're actually making a supply side economic argument. They're making a Reagan Reaganomics argument. If you lift the burden off of business, they'll create more jobs. That is true. But it shouldn't be done for one corporation to punish the rest of the of the job creators and any look at the job creation amazon might create you have to also look at the dynamic effect how many jobs does amazon destroy how many do they destroy they're approaching monopoly status if they're not already there very difficult to be a small retailer and compete on price and delivery and all that stuff with amazon And I'm not saying necessarily that we should put some burdens on Amazon. They're obviously doing something right. They're doing what people want, uh, delivering stuff cheaply and efficiently. But do we have to help them crush the mom and pops? Do we have to subsidize the destruction of mom and pops? Anyway, I don't think so. AOC doesn't seem to think so. I agree with her. I'm not ashamed of it. Even a broken clock is right twice a day. And in this case, AOC, I'm right 100% of the time. But AOC is the broken clock that's right twice on this day about amazon and the reason this is back in the news is when they didn't come to new york they went to virginia and made all these promises and just like with almost every corporate welfare scheme and boondoggle that i've seen the promises didn't come through they're cutting jobs and they're pausing construction so the promises didn't come through and the subsidies probably will come through because the jobs that are there people in virginia the leaders of virginia they want to keep the jobs there so if they try to claw back any subsidies because amazon broke the deal amazon will say okay we'll we'll just move out and the politicians certainly don't want that so that's where the the big corporation has the state and the taxpayer in a tough leverage situation but we have to leave it right there all good things must come to an end and that is the end of this this episode of issues and interviews with kieran michael lawler make sure you download it Make sure you subscribe and make sure you share it with your friends, and we'll go far and wide. And be back next time on issues and interviews with here Michael Law.